being in a job that you enjoy or don't enjoy can significantly enhance your own life, your family's life, or take years off you. And I think we forget that in the industry because we think about deals and transactions, but that you know, fundamentally it's a very, very human job. Welcome to the Resilient Recruiter Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Whitby, and I'm joined today by Logan Nadu. Logan is the founder and CEO of Dartmouth Partners. Over the last eight years, they've grown from startup to one of the UK's fastest growing recruitment companies, having received private equity backing and made their first acquisition of Pure Search. Today, the group operates a multi-brand, multi-niche company with over 180 employees across five geographies. They're listed as an FT1000 fastest growing company in Europe and are set for tremendous growth over the coming years. Logan has been named by the Sunday Times as one of Britain's 500 most influential people. And he's been shortlisted as Recruitment Entrepreneur of the Year twice. Logan, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Morning, Mark. How are you? I'm awesome. Thank you. Listen, when I was uh, preparing for this, I, I, I read that you have three kids. Me too. Um, what ages are yours? Mine are 10, uh, almost eight, and uh, five and a half. Got to, got to think oh. about that carefully. Yeah, they're fantastic. All, all a good age. How are you? How old are yours? Uh, so they are 17, 13, and 11. Uh, you're so. always, you're, you've got one that's almost, almost out of your hands. I know. It's, scary, it's gone scarily fast. Like It just seems like yesterday... You know, she was little and now she's, uh, you know, doing her final exams and thinking about uni and that sort of thing. So, yeah, scary stuff. Um, Listen, I understand Dartmouth Partners is actually your second recruitment business. You founded Cornell Partnership in 2005. Why did you decide to leave that business and launch Dartmouth Partners? Yes, good question. I set up I set up Cornell when I was 25, 26 years old. Uh, knew next to nothing about recruitment, um, and you know, sort of fell into it. And I, I ran around being a, a big biller. I had two business partners uh, at the time, and, and we made decisions equally. So it was, it was done by consensus, which actually, in hindsight, was 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 a fundamental flaw. Um, but but ultimately, I guess as a 25 year old, and they were probably 15 years older than me. We we wanted different things in in the in the long term. You know, I, I got bored of billing. Um, you know, once you build a million pounds in in recruitment, which is the the holy grail for a lot of people, uh, and you've done it you've done it twice. You know, for me the question became, well, what what happens next? Um, and about that point, I was about twenty eight, twenty nine. A couple of things that happened from a, uh, I guess a, a private life point of view caused a lot of things to to give me pause for thought. One of them was getting married. I got diagnosed with cancer on our first wedding anniversary or day before our oh first wedding God. anniversary. So um, having gone through, I guess, two life-changing things, the third one was we had a kid six months later um, uh, after I got diagnosed. So, you know, lots of things happened by the age of 31. You know, got, got married, had a kid, um, had cancer. And I guess I was already thinking, what you know, if I'm slightly bored at work, if I get better, what happens? What happens next? Uh, and at that point, you know, money money wasn't super important to me. I just wasn't enjoying my day to day role, um, and I wanted to grow a really big company because for me, part of the journey uh, in recruitment was how good am I at business, not not how good am I just solely as a as a biller. Um, and 
you know, I, I think broadly there are two or three types of recruitment company. We are running a lifestyle business. You know, pull out the dividend every year, go go again, and that incremental growth was stifling my own personal growth. And actually, I felt most of our employees at the time as well. So that that led me to to probably thinking, look, I want to I want to grow a bigger company. Um, we can't do it at Cornell, so I'll I'll need to go and start again. Wow, that's uh, that's an incredible journey that you've been on. So. Sounds like you were really successful as a builder, but you wanted to build uh, a business and not just have a lifestyle business. You wanted to grow something. Uh, why? What? What is driving that? Where does that motivation to to actually build something come from? Oh, don't, doesn't everything come from your parents? What is it? One's parents, parents <laughs> approval. Uh, I, 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 look, I think. Look, if, I, if, we, if we take a step back, I think you know, build, build, building any company. Is is hard being a pe- building a people based business is is difficult and fraught fraught yes. with uh, uh, ups and downs of emotion. But I think that the I think that the bit that's you know super interesting for me on the on the journey is I'm very fortunate I get to work with a, a group of people, many of whom that I've worked with for a decade now. Um, some of them are you know, my best friends in the world, which is which is, yes. which is super fun. Um, but we, we get to grow together, right? And so the journey can often be lonely. At points, it's been very isolated and, and lonely. But by and large, I think I've had a, a good group of people around me, and and we've we've grown on the journey together. So so actually, I think seeing other people grow and flourish uh, and helping nurture them, and in turn. You, know, you grow as well. I think that's that's mm. the that's been one of the driving driving factors. Awesome, yeah, for sure. Like the personal growth here, um, it sounds like that is is really important to you as much as the business growth. Would you um, share a little more about you? Sort of like glossed over a huge, like dropped this bomb and then and then moved on. But I can't kind of get my head around still your first wedding anniversary, you're diagnosed with cancer, that must have just, like, wh- what's going through your mind at that stage and, and how did that shift your perspective on business and what you want to do with your life? Yeah, I'll tell you the kind of whole story. So we, we, you know, we're, uh, we're Christians. Um, we didn't live together before we got, got married. We got, we got married uh, October the 10th. Um, we were moving house because my wife was uh, six months pregnant and we needed, needed a bigger place. And the day we were moving house was uh, October the 9th, the year after. So the day before our, our first wedding anniversary. And I remember um, going to pick up, picking up parking tickets and getting a call. And I had a lump at the back of my leg that had grown from being uh, the size of a, a kind of marble to the size of a tennis ball. Uh, in the space of three months, just protruding at the back of my leg, so it got it got quite big, um, yeah. and no one could work out what it what it was. But it, it started to get to the point where it was quite uncomfortable, and so we moved we moved we moved house. And we were going to go get parking permits, and I was in the car uh, with my father in law, who who was a doctor, and I I got, I got a call um, say, saying you know we think you've got a soft tissue sarcoma, and I heard sarcoma, and I was like sarcoma, what's a sarcoma? Um, and my father in law. I instantly clicked, turned the music down, and I, I got out of the car and let's, let's go get these tickets. And he said, I, I said, I think I've got a, a farcoma. And he was like, Look, he said, I don't think it's a farcoma. So I went, I went off. He'd already made the call to um, 
his wife, who's with with my wife, uh, say saying, oh, "I think he's got some bad news." <laughs> when we get back, he might want to have a chat with uh, Abby. Send Abby out. So Abby got sent out onto the street, six months pregnant, um, and I had to tell her there. Oh, just had a really bad call, um, and I think she was oh, expecting fla- flowers. We need to bring flowers back. So um, uh, the day after our first wedding anniversary was a pretty pretty glum glum affair. Um, but fortunately, look, they, they caught it. Um, they, they managed to, to cut it out, and then I had six months of, of radiotherapy. Um, and our, our eldest was born, you know, three months three months later. Um, wow! And I think, look, during the the actual you know operation went pretty smoothly. The, the radiotherapy was amazingly painful. I'll be honest, that was that was that was horrible. Um, and I was on I was on morphine at the end, and it was it was, it was deeply unpleasant. And actually, I think you know my, my whole treatment was was generally pretty 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 straightforward um but you know the, i guess from a work point of view what was going through my mind was yeah keep the business afloat and i was the, the driving force of the business so i was still coming in and out of the office from from the hospital and i still was still billing because i think at that point without my billings the, the business wouldn't have survived which is the danger with a lot of these lifestyle businesses um and and you know, I think pretty clearly I was thinking that this has got to change. Whenever I come back, this this whole scenario has got to change, um, and that that was that was one of the driving forces. Like, you know, life is super short. I already knew that. We all know that. Um, and uh, but but for you know, at thirty two, I don't want this to be the rest of my my working career. However long I've got, you know, just coming back, being on the billing mm. treadmill, and and so. You know, I didn't know many other recruitment businesses at the time because I hadn't had worked in, in many. But you know, I guess what I know now is that that career path of being a billing manager, growing a team, running a division, is is subsequently what what drives a lot of recruitment company growth. Yeah, absolutely. So you had this horribly unpleasant radiotherapy, and you were still going into the office and and because you had to bill. Um, that sounds insane. Logan, um, like yeah, the what stupid, was the stupid the, things we do, right? What I mean, I guess you, you, I don't know what other options you really had, but you felt you had this was the only way, right? So how did you how did you actually manage that physically, psychologically? What how did you get through that? Uh, look, I think I think physically, you know, it's amazing what we can put our bodies through. So actually, mm. you know, I, I, I put myself through. Uh, you know, quite a lot of pain. As I said, I was on morphine towards the end, and that was when I, I stopped working for a couple of weeks. It was just too painful, and I actually, I, I remember I wanted to stop taking calls. I didn't want anyone to bother me. I was, I was you know, sat there in my cold house, feeling sorry for myself. Um, I think the the emotional side of it, you know, I think, look, you know, you go through a lot of changes, right? You've just got married, you've had a kid a year later. Um, there's a lot of life changes and actually emotionally, I think a lot of the, the biggest change for a, particularly a lot of men when they have their first child, you go from typically being number one in the household where, you know, the focus is, you know, rightly or wrongly, your wife kind of looks after you quite often to being number three in the household, you know, baby, wife, then you, and you get kicked down the, the pecking order. And I think a lot of men struggle, <laughs> struggle with that generally, don't they? I think a lot of men suddenly feel like they, they, they're not being prioritized. Um, and actually, you know, my wife was incredible during the whole period and really looked after me. I think from a work point of view, I did start to resent that I was carrying the business. 
you know, and I started to think this, you know, this this can't be right. And it's not that my my business partners weren't supportive. I think they were, they were pretty supportive. I think that the reality was that the, the roles that we played within the business, you know, I was the driving force in the business. Um, at that point, most of the people reported into me, um, and and so you know, me stepping away from the business just wasn't a physical possibility um so i think i you know during during that you know that year that was when it really crystallized me something's got to change absolutely so then from that point when you kind of you you got to the end of your treatment and you had kind of come to this realization that you wanted something different to what the current business model was was uh, providing for you. When, how long did, from there, did you take to, to launch uh, launch your new business? Yeah, so I, I came back and I had a reasonably frank conversation. I think that the guys had known that I, w- I wanted to change things for, you know, two or three years before, before I was ill. You know, I'd already uh, said that I was I was bored and getting a bit frustrated. You know, the, the challenge, as I said, was that things were done by consensus. You had two parties that wanted to run a business for a dividend. Um, and so when I came back, I, you know, I was pretty clear that look, something needs to change. Um, and and yeah, we were we were at a deadlock ultimately. So we have the the kind of slightly tricky extrication of myself. You know, where they they they, they fundamentally bought me out. Um, and you know, during that process, I was starting to think about what what next and what does the next business look like, and how do I not make the same mistakes? Um, and obviously, to some extent, you make you make similar mistakes, so you, you make different ones. But we came up with this kind of pithy idea that you know, it's classroom to boardroom model, which was the the kind of um, the germination of an idea of the kernel of, of Dartmouth, which was talent. We, we, we cover professional services in, in, in the city, largely. And the idea was that talent follows money off campus, largely into the square mile. Um, and the cream of the crop rise to the top and do so quickly. So the idea was that rather than one individual building a brilliant black book, how do we institutionalize that as a, as a business? And so we, we, we took, took a step back and said, OK, we're going to focus on early stage careers at the start. You know, zero to six years was very much the the focus, and then we grow with that candidate pool. And as they matured, our network would mature, and we'd go mm. up the food chain. And so, you know, over the last eight nine years, we've gone from being a, a zero to six year recruiter, going, you know, feeding up, building this great network, and then have ta- attacked it from the top down as well. Which means that we're now we're now placing some C suite people, CEOs, CFOs. Um, uh, COOs across across the across the piece. Wow, interesting. So, what does classroom to boardroom really entail? Like, what? How does that work as a as a as a business model as a methodology? So we've got we've got a grad, graduate arm, which I think is within financial services is is market leader, um, and we run soup to nuts outsource grad recruitment for about 30 businesses uh, we do their their marketing their on-campus branding we build their their brand and then we uh yeah so we do the attraction piece then we do the assessment piece so we 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 physically or you know virtually nowadays interview uh about four thousand undergrads a year uh, wow and 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 we place about 10 percent of those into their first first job um, but that forms the springboard. The, those that four thousand, we think on day one, we know roughly seventy percent of the best graduating talent coming into professional services in in the city. Um, 
and then we, we track those people systematically through their careers so um, help people get their second and third jobs but we've since built we've just built out markets that they go into so banking consulting private equity corporate development corporate strategy we've now got about 14 divisions cfo practice change and transformation you know basically following the the career arcs of where these high flyers go um and then we've subsequently built i guess a search practice that that covers the more senior senior part of that as they progress you know we we progress as well so that dynamic you've described is very British or, or English. And in a sense, how have you exported that model to Frankfurt, Paris and, and other places? We've, we've done pretty much the same, actually. So, okay. you know, you, you, I guess in, in, in our world, a lot of people you know, obviously chase bigger salaries because that's where the bigger fees sit. We, we started by saying we're going to focus on the junior end in a search Esque methodology, so mapping out junior markets, getting to know the candidate pool really well. Um, I guess a lot of the CVs look very similar at the junior end. You know, someone with three, four, five years experience academically, they all um, tick similar boxes, rightly or wrongly, mm-hmm. and then they all go and do very similar things. So the assessment piece is actually based on culture and what what is that person like, and and that's mm-hmm. that, that's um, that's based on on people hours, right? You've got to do a lot of meetings to get to know what good looks like for a specific person and, and an institution, and we've we've replicated that in Germany and 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 Paris. Wow, that's so cool! So you had this concept of classroom to boardroom, which seems to have you really taken off, and I've not really heard of that before. Um, so you came up with something that was quite original. How does it? You said, obviously, if they're all high performers academically, it comes down to culture. How do you make that assessment, you know, to make sure that they're the right person for each of your different clients, which may have different cultures? Yeah, I mean, that's absolutely right. Every every business, even if they compete head on, has a slightly different culture based on the people. So actually, you've got to get to know the firm, the hiring firm really well and see what works for them. You know, and, and in some instances, we work for, as I said, market-facing similar businesses, but the what they look for or who they look for is actually very different. So mm. first, you've got to get to know your client and embed yourself you know, with the client. And that's that's almost acting like an internal HR function or internal recruitment function where you know, the, the key bit is not just getting great people, it's getting the right great people into, into mm. the business. So there's a there's a fair amount of time that's invested in getting to know your, your client in a I guess in a different way to more tactical senior recruitment where it might be a one-off mandate. Interesting. I just noticed that you named both of your companies after Ivy League schools. Yeah. So it's pretty unoriginal. This must isn't it? be something. <laughs> well, no, I just th- I'm wondering were you already thinking of this concept of classroom boardroom when you when you originated the business? No, look, Cornell. Cor- you know, when we when we uh, when we came up with Cornell, it wasn't my idea actually. I remember that was one of the other partners, okay. but um, we wanted something that that sounded like it had been around, sounded like it had some history. Right. And we didn't want to, didn't want our names above the door, um, partly because no one can pronounce my surname largely. But um, <laughs> you know, so so we wanted we wanted something that was um, you know sounded established. And actually, when we set yes. up court, the, uh, registered the Cornell name, we registered the, the Dartmouth name pretty much at the same time. Um, huh. And so, you know, it was it was 
it was a natural thing when I when I left. The, the guy said, "Okay, you take take that thing," and that was part of my, ah. my, my my exit package. All right, brilliant. So, launching a new business was it just you on your own, or did you have any anyone else with you? So I, I I led it, but I had eight people with me on day one. So we had a team team wow. team, team of eight on day one. So it was it was it was reasonably large. Um, all all bar one had worked with me at, at Cornell, so okay. um, they they they'd come over with me. Um, and that was largely the, the financial services team and, and the grad team that that um, I'd, I'd worked with previously. Okay, and how did you finance then this startup with eight uh, eight of you? Uh, so I'm very fortunate that my father-in-law gave me a loan, which he asked to secure against uh, a flat I owned. Um, so we had a, a secure family loan, which is, I guess, the friendliest kind of loan you can get. Um, <laughs> uh, and and yeah, look, you know, I remember saying to my wife that we could lose the house here. We got, you know, and, and yeah. as, as I said to her credit, she she didn't really care. She said, look, you know, you do what you've got to do. Um, so we, wow, we, that's we, awesome. we, we managed to repay that loan largely <clears> within the first the first two years. Brilliant. Okay. And so then what were the, how did things progress from there? Like what were the kind of key milestones that you look back on and say, wow, these were the really critical stages in the evolution of Dartmouth Partners? I think everyone in recruitment will tell you that it's, it's, I someone told me this the other day, but 81% of recruitment companies in the country are, are sub 10, right? Yes. So getting, getting scale in the business, the, I guess the first milestone is, is, Getting to break even, you know that that yeah. that you know, and getting consistently above break even, and that took us, uh, you know, we were, we were kind of at, at race pace reasonably quickly on that. Um, I think that the milestones were really were kind of getting past ten people, uh, getting past twenty people. It took us two years to to break the the bouncing around thirty, which we did for a couple of years, and then going from thirty to fifty. And once we got to fifty, we then kicked into a, another gear. But that that mm. key bit was was building infrastructure to support the growth, you know. And I think you can work extremely hard, run around, doing effectively a billing manager's job as a mm -hmm. director, as a CEO, um, up until fifteen, twenty people. But yeah. I would I would argue that you don't yet have a recruitment business that functions without you as an as yes. an owner. And I think that's the that's the the change that that happens. So you know that. That hard, the hardest bit is breaking 30 people because that's when you start to need some infrastructure. You need to start to invest in that infrastructure. You're probably mm. going to compromise some of your profit for that. Um, and as yes. a, the psychology for most recruitment owners who think it as cash businesses and as billers is that my profit's going to go down. You know, so is that you know, you know is that the right investment for me at this at this time? Um, yes. but, and we and we struggled with that for for 12 to 18 months. So let's talk about that. First of all, like I believe being a billing manager is probably the toughest role in recruiting because you're doing effectively two jobs at the same time. You're, in fact, you are doing three jobs because you're, you know, managing clients, making placements. You're also, you know, training, coaching, managing a team. You're also running a business. And each of those could be a full-time job effectively on its own. Um, like how did you... How did you achieve that successfully before we go on to looking at the scaling part? Because, you know, I think this is the reason why most businesses don't grow is it is, it's hard. It's hard to get through that phase where, you know, you're trying to manage people and manage the desk. Yeah, you're, look, I, I, 
you're right. Everyone says it's the toughest job in recruitment, and it and it is. I actually also think it's it's probably the most enjoyable job in recruitment if you like managing people. And so, what makes a, a great biller, and we all fall into the trap of promoting great billers into into being managers, and typically they're they're quite reluctant to to do it because it means they're going to earn less. Um, and the, the psychology for most billers is, is that they're they're generally inherently selfish. You know, they they're, they're chasers. You know, so they like doing deals. If they're a good biller, they've got good pace, good focus, and it's relentless. So they're very consistent on building that pipeline, and that's one thing. You know, and one thing only. Um, to then say, can you manage some people, which takes patience. Uh, you, you've got to be head up rather than head down. Um, you've got to deal with the emotional roller coaster of looking after someone rather than just yourself. It's mm-hmm. it's a very different skill set. Um, yes. And but I I think you get if you if you like the the latter part, you get the best of both worlds because you're still client facing. You still get to talk to clients. You're still in the market. Um, so you get to deliver on mandates, which is the bit that probably you enjoyed and made you successful. And then you mm-hmm. get this new skill set, which is a whole new development area of of training and nurturing people which if you can see beyond the first couple years say well i've got a career path in recruitment apart from just doing the same job forever uh, which actually if you want to do that that's 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 great we've got a few people like that and they're they're brilliant market makers but if you've got the ability to grow and scale a team you've actually Mm -hmm. then got a career path beyond just doing the same job that you started out at you know at let's say 2025 and so I think it's really important that people ask themselves the question when they become good billers, you know, how long do I want to do it for? And is this what I want to be doing in 10, 15, 20 years time? Because the, the reality is it's, it's relentless, right? Because there's always mm. someone younger and hungrier that's nipping at your heels and you've got to hit refresh in your, your, your contact list and your, your client base every, every three to five years. Um, yeah, and as I said, some people love love doing that. They're, they're, they're hunters by by nature, right? And so they, they want to, they want to do that. Um, but I think that if you can help handhold people over that threshold in terms of understanding what it takes to be a great manager, the challenge you know we had was we didn't have lots of role models at the time who are who are great mm-hmm. managers. And I don't think I was a, a great role model. I think aspirationally I wanted to do that, but um, I think I fell into the, a lot of the the same pitfalls and traps. Um, of being impatient, you know, probably bad at explaining explaining things, um, you know, all the classic mistakes of of, of typically good recruiters. The you know, but fortunately we ha- we we managed to train and hire people who are better at that, and they became the role models. Um, and 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 you know, we 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 grew from that point. Since you're listening to this podcast, it tells me that you're someone who's interested in personal growth and business improvement. That's something we have in common. I really enjoy listening to podcasts, reading, and listening to business books, watching TED Talks. But by far the most important investment I've made in my own development has been working with a coach. It started back in 1999, 2000, when I was working as a recruiter. I hired a coach and he helped me to double my billings in 90 days. It was, it sounds corny, but it was really a life-changing experience. Since then, I've worked with various coaches almost continuously over the years, and it's made a massive difference to my own personal and business success. 
In fact, that first experience of working with a coach was the catalyst for me ultimately deciding that much as I loved recruitment, my true purpose was to become a coach and enable others to achieve their full potential. Fast forward to today, and I work with recruitment business owners to help them escape the feast and famine roller coaster and create consistent, predictable billings. If you'd like to know more, you can apply for a free strategy session at recruitmentcoach.com forward slash breakthrough. I wasn't expecting to talk about this, Logan, but just I'm really intrigued to dig deeper because I think a lot of recruiter, recruitment companies do get this wrong. You know, they have a top biller and that's automatically the person who becomes the manager and they may or may not be the right character or be ready in their maturity level or, or, or whatever. How have you avoided falling into that trap and, and how do you decide who those people are that are your future leaders so that you can nurture, nurture that? So I guess there's two there's two parts in in, mm. in where we are as as Dartmouth. Um, the first the first part was we've got a couple of people that have, have I've worked with for, for ten plus years who were 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 and are good billers, but mm. again they went through that journey of I don't want that to be my career path forever. And actually, yes, you know, with with you know intellectually they're both or all of them are actually quite bright, and so mm. you know they did think conceptually around beyond money you know i guess what's yes. what stops a lot of people <clears throat> thinking about um about that or doing it is they're they're captured by my income you know yes. and, and we'd always talked about a capital play as a business um you know being honest at that point who knew whether we were going to achieve it or not but but that was the aspiration and and then aligned to that as you've got more role models in the business you've got more people to point to and say follow that person and they're good role models, right? Because mm. they can run a, a happy team, a successful team. You know, we, we're, you know, we've got five values like like most companies, but the two that I really focus on are excellence and kindness. And I think mm. you want to kind of marry the two. And you, you, if you treat your team well, it doesn't mean having to be, uh, you know overtly nice to them the whole time but sometimes you have to deliver bad messages but in a nice way i think you can have a happy performing successful team um and emotional control as a manager is super important isn't it that ability um not to 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 kind of lose your rag or 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 lose your temper with someone is 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 super important and and so Mm -hmm. uh, which is hard when you're under pressure you're under pressure to deliver um but we got role models, and then the second thing I think we put we put a lot of time into L and D uh, and making yes. sure that people were supported from a to beyond the just learn on the job way. Um, yes. And again, we go back to the investment required. That was expensive, made a lot of mistakes along the way, uh, probably wasted a lot of money with with some L and D that was 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 not uh, not a good return or not well thought through. Um, mm-hmm. But we've, I think we've now hit our stride, and we still iterate that because mm-hmm. as we get bigger, it's a function that needs to grow. You know, as I said, we've gone from fifty to one hundred people in, in eighteen months to two years, and so yes. so that again, the infrastructure required to train a fifty-person workforce to you know what will be a group of two hundred at the end of this year is very different. Amazing. So I'd love to talk about those shifts with the infrastructure, the L&D. I think that's important. But first, can I just pick up on the values? Because I have never come across another, and maybe they exist out there. And if you're listening, and this is one of your corporate values, then then get in touch. But kindness isn't one that I've seen before in recruitment. And I, I love it. My, my mom's 
top number one value is kindness. And she's kind of instilled that in me. I don't always live up to it, of course, but, you know, being human, but uh, it's definitely in my makeup, like as part of, you know, from, from birth, that was kind of like um, really important in our family. But then I've not always seen the clear path to, to how that applies in a business context. So what does that mean? Like, I think the thing with values, some companies just have these values, but they're words on a website um, and they're not lived. So how, what does kindness mean in the context of a recruitment business? Ex- externally with clients and candidates, you know, I always say that you, know, you might meet six people a day, but that person coming in for one hour to have a conversation about their, their career, it's super important to them, right? Because the, you know, I, I live through this um, you know, with, with my, my father in particular, but being in a job that you enjoy or don't enjoy can significantly enhance your own life, your family's life, or take years, years off you, right? So mm. actually listening to them and, and taking it seriously is, is, is really important. Um, and, and I think we, we forget that in the industry because we think about deals and transactions, but that you know, fundamentally it's a very, very human job. And that's real privilege. Actually, you get to get to know your candidates really well. Um, a lot of them become friends over time. They really trust you. And uh, you know, some of my candidates that I still talk to say, "You know me better than I know me." Uh, when you know, and and that's um, that's a real privilege, and we shouldn't forget that. The the bit internally, uh, you know, I, I think that you know, talking to people in a you know, and ultimately treating them in a in a grown up manner. Um, Everyone says it's it's you know we, we we tend to go down the route of micromanagement and KPIs, but actually if we hire bright, good, hardworking people and train them in the right way, you can give them an awful lot of freedom. Yeah, mm-hmm. actually you you don't need to micromanage them, um, but with the freedom comes responsibility. So that's mm-hmm. that Netflix culture of the two. In go, Spider-Man's words. Absolutely, the two the two come. <laughs> The two come, go hand in hand. And so, you know, we, we've hired someone that has historically achieved something, you know, whether it's sports or education uh, or out, outside activity in terms of responsibilities. Um, when you come into a recruiting business, why do we need to treat you like a, a child? We don't, we don't, right? We need to train you up. We need to show you how, how it's done, equip you with the right tools, but then the mm-hmm. responsibilities on on you. Um, mm-hmm. And so that takes away some of the, the kind of cooker cooker pressure that exists. Um, and then sec- second, if we go on that, that, that basis, um, if things go, things go wrong, let's have a starting point as giving each other the benefit of the doubt, right? Let's, mm-hmm. let's not, you know, let's, let's not, let's not sweat over your, or point the finger. Um, and so I think, you know, I, look, I think it's good business sense. I think it's commercially the right thing to do. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that because, yeah, we're, we're generally quite good at attracting people into the industry. We're less good at keeping them. And I think if you can mm-hmm. reduce your attrition rate generally, it's mm-hmm. your business will, will kick on. So look, I, I think it makes the running of the business more enjoyable because you're not having a fight every day with people. Um, I think it creates a better working environment. And I think the, the, the third thing commercially, it hits the bottom line. Um, and you know, broadly, I'd say, I'd say, I'd say it works. It doesn't mean we're not driven. You know, we're super driven by, by mm-hmm. wanting to achieve hopefully you know great things in in the industry and, and beyond um and i'd say that you know i'm as, I'm as driven as, as as the next person but you know how how you're treated no one should get out of bed looking for a fight you know no one wants to go home having telling their you know 
household, their partner, their wife, husband, you know, what a, what a, you know, nasty conversation I have with an individual today or how frustrating it was, you know, we do clash sometimes, right? We're, we're human beings, uh, and sometimes the cortisol level and, and the pulse rates get going. Um, but at that point, you want to be quick to apologize and, and de-escalate. Amazing. Thanks for uh, for sharing that philosophy. And and the fact you've got it with part, it's excellence and kindness, right? So the two are not mutually exclusive by any, by any means. Um, so the standards for performance are still very, very high. Let's talk about L&D then, because it, I believe that this is the missing key to unlocking real growth that's sustainable. Um, and all of the, I mean, if you look at the difference between the sub 10, you know, companies and the growth companies, um, the growth companies, I have never come across a growth company that did not invest heavily time and money in, in learning development. What does that look like at uh, Dartmouth Partners? So we've, I guess where we are today is very different to where we were you know, three or four years ago, but we've got we've yeah. got a fairly comprehensive program that goes through the career path. Um, it takes you down two two pathways now, but but largely it's around creating management and leadership. You know, so we'll we'll train you on the sales part, how to become a, a good biller, how to run a desk, um, how to be client facing, dealing with some of the trickier interactions that we have um, early on, and then the the, the phase two and three and four is taking someone like that and turning them into being a good manager, which is a completely different skill set. For most people, it's not intuitive, particularly if they've come from other recruitment companies where they've not witnessed it. And we, we, we do fairly well hiring people like that who are then going on the journey of a team build. How do I assemble a team? How do I, I guess, have two jobs at one point to then training people as a leader? And for that, that culminates with a uh, something we've got with LBS, which is a, a two-year exec MBA program, um, which we, we try and put directors through who, again, I'm thinking you know, long-term around, around hopefully ha- running a much, much bigger business. Uh, how do we have proper leaders that, that can, can run divisions or, or, or much bigger areas without having to, to hire people in? Amazing. So wait, you're, you have the opportunity for people to do a two-year executive MBA at London Business School? Yeah, it's it's a collaboration with London Business School, so okay. um, uh, it's it's something we've we've you know I, I called I called up uh, one of the faculty and they've they've you know in conjunction we've designed a two year program that's bespoke for us. Wow, well that's awesome. So, um, by the way, just so I understand, your business model do, is each person a three sixty degree biller, or do you have a split desk model? No, everyone largely aspirations to be be a three hundred and sixty biller. We're just at that yeah. tipping point, interestingly now, where we're we're thinking about is there another career path for for career researchers, um, mm-hmm. um, and we're just starting to think about that that now. But um, the business has been built around people trying to be three hundred and sixty. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And so you've given the broad strokes of this training program, but like. It's so important that um, you mentioned that you didn't always get it right at first and you've had to I- iterate. What what does it look like now? Like, what do you think is extraordinary or world-class about the way that you, you train and develop people currently at Dartmouth Partners? I, I think the aspiration is for it to be world-class. I think we're, 
we probably do a lot of things really well, and actually, and, and part of it is because, again, who are the heroes in the business? L and D for me is, you know, one of the areas that you want to you want to herald and say say they they're super important. It's not a it's not a back off office function. It's not a function that yes. you utilize when you're struggling. You know, everything is blended around making our people better, and so mm-hmm. I think the things that we 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 do well again, you know, hopefully role modeling what excellence looks like within that function and you need therefore you need people who are starters and finishers in in that in that area and and you know a lot of lnd people fall into you know unfortunately one of those camps as well so you know people can see it through um they they need to you know they need to know that they're taken seriously as well you know so again lnd is one of the selling points of this business um for for people joining it and and the support that you'll get um i think the things that we got wrong at the start you know you don't you don't know what you don't know right so i'm a i'm a self-taught recruiter that found it intuitive because i grew up in a household where you know you're you're kind of bored to hustle so you know it's it's ingrained in you the you know so the the kind of trap that i fell into with with other people so just follow me around and copy what i do right that that's 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 how the magic happens Um, (laughs) you know it's 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 probably the world's worst way of training someone so, uh, I mean, I think it, there's a place for shadowing and, and listening into calls and so on. That's definitely got to be part of it, but absolutely. not the, um, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Look, you, you, look, and look, you weren't, I think generally the way we learn is by witnessing good role modeling, right? You know, so right, right. I spend a lot of my time looking for, you know, different various parts of my life. I want to be uh, a better family person who, who looks like they're a good father and husband, you know, and want to be a better Christian, find older Christians that have walked the walk. Uh, you want to find good business people, surround yourself with good, good business people, same with managers or, or billers. And so, um, yeah, we've got to role model that throughout, throughout our entire business. And, and yes. L and D's got to help, help support you and help you understand as well as do uh, along the way. Okay. Um, you said something interesting earlier, which is that you don't want to micromanage people, and I 100% agree. At the same time, in order to have a scalable business, you need to have, um, you know, visibility of performance and metrics, and and understand what people need extra help with, and what they're, you know, where they're overachieving, and so on. What, how do you organize that within Dartmouth Dartmouth Partners? So I, I keep I keep a we we do keep KPIs and I I get the KPI sent to me once a week and I I have a look at the key met- metric I look at really is jobs on, uh, client meetings okay. had and, and and CVs out the door as a as a as a business um, mm-hmm. once a week and actually we only started collecting that data properly during lockdown because in a remote really? working environment okay. we need to see what mm. what, was, what was going on. Um, yeah. Look, <clears throat> I, I go back to if you hire good people and give them freedom and responsibility in. in you know, in, in equal measure, they'll they'll they should embrace it. And if you've got if you've got the right person in the business, they'll they'll embrace embrace both with equal measure. The mm-hmm. the challenge, you know, where you want to use the KPIs is again educating along the way and helping people understand. And that's part of the L and D function of how do I build my desk? You know, why am I spiking once a month or every quarter? Mm-hmm. Um, as you build a team helping them understand the KPIs. But I don't, I don't, I don't think, I think it's quite a 1980s way of running recruitment firms. And I'm sure businesses bigger than us and more successful than us still do it in, in this way. Um, and it works for them. But you know, if you just do enough of activity, so some, some nectar drops out through the end, um, I think you want to try and educate 
your workforce to understand what good activity looks like and what's the right activity for your market and for your area. And it, it does mm -hmm. differ. And so um, I don't want to manage through KPIs. I just want the, the KPIs to act as one part of educating an individual along the way. Makes sense. I, I actually think KPIs are incredibly important as a self evaluation and, um, you know, decision-making tool. So regardless of whether the business is like enforcing certain KPIs or minimum uh, expectations, I want to know what my ratios are, for example, like how many, what percentage of, of jobs am I filling? What percentage of first interviews are leading to a second interview? And, you know, if, if there's, because I want to work smarter rather than just work harder, right? So um, by measuring, you can very accurately assess, you know, where you need to maybe perhaps give some extra focus in order to improve a, an issue yeah. or what have you. I completely agree with that. I mean, you, you know, most, most people who go to the gym, you know, every day or consistently have a plan. Otherwise you're going to, you're going to plateau. Right. So right. Um, you'll generally either keep a mental record or keep a physical log of what am I doing in the gym? What am I, what am I, what am I here for? Um, and, you know, if you're, depending on what you're trying to achieve, you'll, you'll get quite granular on that with your diet, et cetera. So exactly. you, you do it and definitely do it one part of, of life. You know, you can't expect to be successful uh, in any industry actually by not keeping a record of what, you know, what am I, what am I doing? How am I improving? And so I think the KPIs totally. play a, a reasonably important part, part in that. I guess there's a difference between utilizing them to uh, help people understand how to self-manage versus, yeah. you know, imposing that on people. I totally agree. I actually, um, uh, you, it's interesting you're focused on jobs, uh, meetings, and CVs out. I prefer looking at first interviews as a metric rather than CVs out because I feel like CVs submitted can, if you, now I, I understand you're not putting a target and saying you need to increase that, right? So that's different, but it can per potentially get people focused on the wrong thing. <clears throat> Whereas the, 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 the first interviews are a really good indicator of pipeline more so than how many CVs did someone send. And there's a lot of poor practice in recruiting of just firing CVs out the door that are not, you know, the right ones for the client or what have you. Yeah. Yeah. I guess going back to the, the culture of our business, we, 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 we're generally very in tune with our clients. And so actually, mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're a low, low CVs out the door business and the hit rate is very, very good. So I don't really need to, right. you know, personally, I don't look at the conversion because I know the conversion is high. Um, mm -hmm. What I want to check is do people have enough roles on to send the right number of CVs out? Um, but again, yeah. I actually don't go into that, that granular detail because the rhythm of the business, the, I'm sure the direct directors and the line managers and the team leaders uh, should be looking at that stuff, um, yeah. but but from a from a, a macro point of view, they I let those guys run their teams, and if they've got individual problems, that the MDs can can pick up on it or should yeah. be picking up on it. But the you know our, our conversion is, is is generally pretty good. What um, you said, you bounced around Logan between sort of uh, between twenty and thirty people before you sort of broke through to that next level. What do you think was constraining your growth there and then what did you do to change that me okay <laughs> can um, you elaborate on that i mean i've i've got to take responsibility ultimately for for what was a failure in the business um 
you don't know what you don't know. You know, scratching your head trying to work it out. What's 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 going on? Why am I getting it wrong? Um, I, I'd say that you know we we probably at the you know twenty person mark. What did we exalt with Harold? We heralded our our top billers. You know, what do you get rewarded? You get rewarded for, for billing big. And we didn't, as I said, we didn't have a lot of good managers in the business, and I I wasn't one of them. So um, that was a that was a failing in the business. We'd also pretty fallen into the trap of a lot of startup recruitment companies saying we're not a sales environment you know we're, it's a mm. it's you know so we hired a lot of people that executed the work that i brought in or a couple others brought in um mm. and then that transition phase when we were getting to 30 people where two three four people couldn't bring enough work in to feed 30 uh, and so we we had to transition where a lot of people voted with their, their feet sadly but saying actually we need you guys to go and sell i was like oh i didn't sign up for that what, what is it yeah, where on the job spec does it say sales person <laughs> um, and so so we we you know that was a that was a failing in our hiring policy and we we changed mm. that in terms of being much more overt and this is you know it's a sales job um yes. and so we started hiring a slightly different type of person and and then training them in that um but but look ultimately you know I would say I fell into the, the trap of, you know, in some instances, hiring the wrong people, culturally mm-hmm. letting, um, so, you know, it, I guess in one instance, a big biller um, uh, get away with bad actions on the floor because they were a big biller. And that was me not being mm-hmm. tough enough and strong enough in terms of my own beliefs um, of, of how to how to do do things right. And I put my hand up for that. That's on me. Um and, and thirdly, we were still a very young business, so I guess at that point it was it was me, and then you know reasonably flat, and and the journey of the business has been growing, growing, mm. growing, growing people to to have a much better management structure and infrastructure around that. Makes sense. So one of the keys was crystallizing and implementing uh, an internal hiring strategy that was more effective, hiring the right people, but then secondly, really focusing on developing those people and, you know, um, building your future management team in, in a sense. Um, so, okay, that makes sense. And then you said after 50, it just has exploded. So wh- what uh, what was the shift there that al- allowed you to really take the, you know, the stabilizers off and, and uh, take off? Start to pedal faster. So... Uh- yeah, I guess at 40 to 50, you know, we had the infrastructure built. Um, and you know, bear in mind, we're constantly trying to build out the infrastructure to support the growth. Yeah. But I guess the the investment from our P backer changed things significantly in June 2018. Mm. That gave us okay. a lot of confidence, I think, as a, as a management team to think we're on the right track, getting institutional investment. Um, the thing that they've done uh, the most is broaden out our, our horizons as to what's possible. Yeah, they they think mm. that much bigger than than we could possibly mm-hmm. think, and and uh, unshackling. And I remember talking to when we were thinking about an office move, and we weren't sure about Brexit and you know what what, what does the future hold? And uh, you know one of the, the investors said, "Look, just always plan for growth, plan 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 right. plan for growth." And 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 you know. It, I still worry about about things going wrong, so I still I still have a, a you know an eye on what what could go wrong, but that if you plan for growth, everyone's everyone's aligned to that, you know, and so the, the the view now is that, and I think everyone's pushing for how do I get the next job, 
you know, how do I develop myself? So it just pushes everyone up through the, the chain. And we've got a few people that have completely shot the lights out and are going really fast. And that's, that's great wow. because, again, everyone looks at those people and says, well, I want to be like that. Um, yeah. And they, they, and, and they don't become exceptions. They, you know, they, 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 you've got a few examples rather than just always having one person that's groundbreaking the whole time. So absolutely, that's, that's where we've we've flown. We've supplemented that with some really good senior hires along the way who've come from being on the journey of, of bigger businesses, um, and they've helped give us more confidence because they'll say they'll say things like, you know, this business is in better shape than X was when we were on that journey, and we went from being a you know, two million EBIT business to a fifty million EBIT business in 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 ten years, and this is going faster and is fundamentally a better business. Everyone listens. And go, okay, well, if they've done it and they're here again for the journey, it just imbues you with confidence. Um, doesn't take away the fact that it's graft, but it, it gives everyone, I guess, a bigger horizon and the confidence to to go and chase it. Amazing. So I've read on LinkedIn that it was 2018. You got you received five five and a half million dollars in investment. Is that accurate? Uh, it, it was 2018. I think it was sli- slightly more than that, but it was a you know, mixture okay. of debt, debt and equity. Okay. And um, now sometimes taking PE investment can have a detrimental effect on the on the culture um, if the you know the the investors are not aligned with what you know, you are about and what you're trying to achieve. And maybe the, f- the focus can shift towards ROI um, rather than long-term sustainability. What's been your experience of that? Uh, we, we, I, my personal experience is that we, we, we got into bed with the right people. They've been really supportive. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm really, I'm actually really thankful for uh, all the help they've given us. As I said, they've been, they've been great people to, to, to work with and, um, you know, I would I would say that the, the literacy team have been great. Actually, the, the, as I said, they've opened up to our, our horizons. You still have to do the work. They're definitely not micromanagers, um, and the debate has generally always been pretty pretty good natured. Um, choosing a P firm, and I, and I don't think that's been the experience for everyone, as, as you as you've just said. I think choosing the right P firm is super important, depending on where you are and the stage of the journey. So, you know, for me. I didn't want to hop off the bus and a lot of people want to cash out and walk out the door because they don't want the rigors that, that go with that. I go back to the starting point of, you know, why Dartmouth? I wanted to grow personally. I wanted this to be a vehicle to have that journey with, with, with others. And so, yes. you know, we've, we've kept, you know, more or less all our senior team and added to it over the last two and a half years. Um, and, and, you know, next iteration, I hope that, you know, it's still just another stepping stone onto something, something bigger. Amazing. And uh, then you had this acquisition. When did that happen? So we closed that September 2019, which uh, okay. in retrospect was fortuitous timing for, for, for the vendors. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so, but what, uh, why acquisition? Like, why not just focus on organic growth, continuing to grow the um, Dartmouth Partners brand? So we've got, we've probably got three, three, three things underpinning what we plan to do. So um, we've got a group brand that actually gets announced this week, uh, which is, which is Topco. Um, and that will, that will, that will hold sub market facing brands. So think, think of WPP or S4 Capital as it, as it is today. Um, and, and, you know, we'll, we will have core organic growth within Dartmouth that is, you know, close to market leading. We've grown 30% top and bottom line every every year. We'll use that to 
organically grow new business areas and potentially spin them out. So things like HR, we, we're pretty open to saying we'll get that to 20, 30 people and spin that out as a separate brand because that cascades through the sub-brands really well. Of course. Um, and then we'll acquire where we want to go into markets that where you know, we think we're better off buying, buying a, a foothold in that market and then building around it. And pure um, within tax infrastructure governance compliance was is a, it's a great business you know been around for 20 years and specifically within tax it's it's really really well known it's not all that they do but it's it's really well known and so um you know we we you know we felt that it's a business that was was pretty well run that we could help go faster um mm. and again just you know at circa 80 people it was a business that we could inject some some pace into to um just slowly improve it operationally love it Logan, I talk to a lot of recruitment entrepreneurs and you think big. I love like how just um, your vision just seems like so far beyond the, uh, the, the typical owner. Uh, it's really exciting. What about the U.S.? We've got so three pure. We've got about 20 people in New York. Um, okay. We've got a lady called Daisy who was meant to be out for Dartmouth March last year. She was out in New York as the world went into lockdown so she got on the last plane back and, and came back to 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 london got back into a flat and um has been working remotely for a year she's got her flights booked for june this year so she'll Great. be she'll be on the ground um and we've just hired as group head of international so working for that top brand colonel uh, a chap called james wakefield who was previously the ceo of cobalt uh, and he led oh, a yes. lot of a lot of their international builds so he's going to help us specifically with with getting kind of international uh, not just in America, but but globally to hopefully be half the business in, in the next three years. Amazing. Well, Logan, I feel like we've scratched the surface here, but it has, I mean, I, so I'd love to do this again sometime, but it's been really, really interesting. And, and thank you so much for coming on The Resilient Recruiter. No, not at all. Thanks for your time. Thank you for listening. Just before you go, let me ask you one question. Who in your network would make a great guest on the Resilient Recruiter podcast? I'm always on the lookout for interesting people to interview, recruitment entrepreneurs who embody the ethos of the Resilient Recruiter. If you're a regular listener, you'll know the kind of person I'm looking for. Ordinary men and women who've achieved extraordinary things. Specifically, I'm looking for someone with a great story to tell, someone who's overcome adversity in pursuit of their goals, and who's open to sharing their own mistakes and learning experiences with our listeners. In the words of previous guests, John Coxon and Alex Elliott, I'm looking for someone with humble confidence. They could be a top producing solo or independent recruiter or the owner of a fast growing firm. Maybe that person is you, or maybe it's someone you know. Send me your recommendations, mark at recruitmentcoach.com or feel free to nominate yourself. And if you think you meet the criteria I've just outlined, I'd love to hear from you. Once again, it's mark at recruitmentcoach.com. Remember to hit subscribe and I'll see you next time.